Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at LAist.com slash sweeps. By the way Glenn Miller played Songs that made the hit parade Guys like us, we had it made Those were the days And you knew when you were there Dance for girls and men women Mr. We could use a man like Herbert Hoover again. Didn't need no welfare state. Everybody pulled his weight. GR all the sound great. Well, for those of a certain age, you recognize it as the opening credit song from All in the Family, a landmark series from showrunner, writer, creator Norman Lear. He passed last night in his sleep at 101 years of age, working right up to the end of his life, still trying to develop series uh, to go on streaming services or even network television, a man with a huge impact all in the family with tremendous social commentary on issues from race and politics, women's rights. Let's listen to this scene with B. Arthur, who'd go on to get her own series, Maud, uh, Archie's cousin from All in the Family. And let's hear the interaction between Carol O'Connor as Archie Bunker from All in the Family and uh, B. Arthur as Maud. Are you waiting for a special invitation? I said breakfast is on the table. I heard you. So did every moose up in Canada. <laughs> Listen, Archie, I'm not going to let you upset me. I'm only here because of Edith. The fact that you happen to be here with her is beyond my control. <laughs> like any other freak of nature. <laughs> Uh, that from All in the Family, the series that uh, Norman Lear created and and helmed uh, include The Jeffersons, uh, as well as we mentioned Maud, One Day at a Time, and uh, just so many terrific uh, pokes at television, including Fernwood Tonight, which was a parody of a talk show syndicated five nights a week and aired around the country. Uh, joining us uh, will be Robert Thompson, director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. But first, I want to hear from you right now the series that really made an impact on you, particularly if you're someone who was coming of age during the time of the more Norman Lear series, 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email us some of the things that you particularly liked about the Norman Lear series from television, atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. As I mentioned from Syracuse, Syracuse University Director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture, Robert Thompson. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. 
Thank you for having me. It's hard to overstate the impact of Norman Lear because of the number of series that he had on network TV at any given time, and it seemed like almost all of them lasted for years. What do you think is most important for us to remember about Lear's contributions? Well, it's so easy to be hyperbolic whenever uh, someone passes, but I don't think we can overestimate the influence that this guy had on American television. Forgetting the news and that kind of thing, in entertainment TV, Norman Lear was the single most influential uh, person in the history of the medium. Uh, there was uh, television before All in the Family, The Flying Nun and Mr. Ed and all of this kind of stuff, shows that took place in the contemporary time but did not acknowledge what happened at the news at 11 with a couple of exceptions, Smothers Brothers and Laugh-In and stuff like well, that. Well, and, and hour-long dramas like The Defenders, I would argue, there were some serious dramas that took it on, but it was not something you'd hear in comedy. Right, and that's a good point. Uh, Defenders, East Side, West Side, mm -hmm. but those, those were never big hits. Uh, East Side, West Side lasted a single uh, season. All in the Family not only decides to take on what's happening at the News at 11, it does it five years in a row, number one in the ratings. That had never been done up until that uh, point before, which means everybody else then jumped on the uh, jumped on the bandwagon. So it that show really changed American television in uh, significant ways. Uh, the Vietnam War, uh, what before All in the Family was pretty much dealt with on primetime by Gomer Pyle, USMC took place in the Contemporary Marine Corps, never once mentioned that we were fighting a war. And that was a hit show. Yeah, yeah. So so true. What do you think was happening in American culture that made TV viewers ready for Lear? Or had they been ready longer, but networks were just too frightened to to have topical humor in, in half-hour sitcoms? I think the second thing you said is right on, which is that I think people were ready to uh, have all of this stuff dealt with in entertainment, but the network wisdom was that people did not want that. They had enough of it when they had to listen to the news and they wanted escapism. And uh, it took them a long time to, uh, to learn that lesson. Even a show like The Smothers Brothers, CBS ultimately canceled uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons, but partially because of the controversy. Lear managed to somehow by taking place in the living room, just like an old sitcom back to the age of father knows best and uh, all the rest of it. Um, but it was us in our living rooms watching them in their living rooms. And it seemed more like a real uh, family than did father knows best and Ozzie and Harriet and all the rest of it. And I think Lear managed throughout his career to deliver these kinds of important, relevant issues, as they used to call it back then, within the confines of a very old school form, the sitcom. And it, it really it really worked. And the idea of casting this bigot, and everybody knew an Archie Bunker uh, when that show uh, came out, was a perfect way to ease us into that. You know, you played that theme song, and it tells you everything you want to know about that show. It does. Archie and his wife, Archie's singing about dreaming of the days before the 60s, before any of this uh, uh, stuff that was uh, changing uh, 
uh, the country. Uh, by the way, Glenn Miller played. Glenn Miller was a World War II guy. Uh, Songs that made the hit parade. That was an old radio show. Uh, he talked about the uh, uh, longing for the Her- Herbert Hoover administration. Their LaSalle. Uh, welfare. Uh, <laughs> Uh, when the LaSalle, LaSalle's hadn't been made uh, forever. Girls were girls and men were men. Archie ch- ticks off every single thing that makes him mad about the new uh, America. And, uh, of course, then uh, they introduce his son-in-law, who's going to represent all that stuff that he wishes never happened in the those were the days he thinks sings about. Yeah. It, it, the show was brilliant right out of the uh, uh, gate. And there had been never anything uh, like it. And then, of course, it spun off this uh, whole uh, uh, universe of other uh, other shows. Uh, we're talking with Robert Thompson, director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at Syracuse University, a terrific historian of television. But I'm asking you to share your favorite Norman Lear-created series. And if you have a particular episode that's particularly powerful, I'd love to hear about it. We're at 866 866- 893-5722 or just simply hilarious 866-893-5722 I, I think about Sammy Davis Jr.'s visit to uh, the Bunker household as, in Queens as as one. Uh, let's talk with Sydney in Koreatown. Sydney, good to have you with us. Um, share with us your thoughts about Norman Lear's shows. Oh my gosh, I've been a fan of Norman Lear for years and as a black trans woman, he would always address trans issues like on the Jeffersons and on All in the Family, LGBTQ issues, and um, it just really had an impact on me as a little kid that he would even talk about those things, and I was just always appreciative that he would even dare to do those things back in the 70s as a kid growing up, and I was just so thankful that he even did those things. Sydney, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing the power of of his shows and what he took on and how meaningful it was for you. 866-893-5722. Now, let's listen to a clip from the Jeffersons. The Jeffersons, uh, a family where George Jefferson ran a cleaning business, as I recall, very financially successful, and uh, he moves uptown in, as the uh, theme tells us, a deluxe apartment in the sky. <laughs> and the and the conflict between George Jefferson and everybody else in his world is funny. Uh, one of my favorites of that series was uh, the great Marla Gibbs. Here's an exchange from the Jeffersons between uh, Sherman Hemsley playing George and the housekeeper for the Jeffersons uh, played by Marla Gibbs. Blonde. Don't get mad at me because you started it. I know it. I want you to keep putting me down. Huh? Look, I can't get nowhere with this Mr. Hendricks, but I want to keep him here. All he seems to like is the way you keep mouthing at me. Huh? Look, stop hawing and listen. <laughs> now, when he gets off the phone, service our drinks and then keep insulting me, okay? Wait a minute. Am I hearing this right? You want me to insult you? Yeah. I'll give you 20 bucks if you do a good job. 20 bucks? Right. Look, Mr. Jefferson, keep your 20 bucks. This one's on me. <laughs> From the Jefferson's Norman Lear series, in case you just joined us, Norman Lear died in his sleep last night at 101, still a font of creativity, uh, right up to the very end of his life. And uh, from all the profiles that I had read of him in recent years, still 
working on series that he was hoping would make it to uh, to streaming or to the airwaves. Uh, joining us in addition to Bob Thompson from Syracuse is Oscar Winberg, who's a postdoctoral fellow at the Turku Institute for Advanced Studies and the John Morton Center for North American Studies. Thank you very much for, for joining us, Oscar. We really appreciate it. You wrote uh, a, a remembrance uh, of, or I should say at the time, he was still living, uh, but a, uh, an essay for the Washington Post about Norman Lear and how his impact continues up to the current day. What is the significance in today's entertainment that you see from Lear? Well, I would say that a lot of the people who are actually doing television today, whether we're talking about Seth MacFarlane or we're talking about Jimmy Kimmel or, you know, Kenya Barris, uh, these are people who watched Norman Lear shows and were influenced by Norman Lear shows and the way that he takes on not just television and pushing the envelope, but also the way he's able to deal with subject matter that the networks were really not very happy to to address in the 1970s and, and still today in some instances. And and uh, what was the, the secret to Lear being able to create shows that did so well in the ratings and yet were topical? I mean, he had, in the 70s, during his heyday, he dominated the airwaves with his, his programs. What do you think was the key to, to making his show so popular? Well, I think part of it was really institutional and, and the changes in the television industry that made it possible for an independent production company, such as Tandem Productions that he started with, Bud Yorkin, to really be able to go up against the networks. And, and what Yorkin and Norman Lear did at Tandem was they were taking on responsibilities that used to be the network's responsibility. So, for example, the standards and practices department at the networks, which was really the industry euphemism for censors, what Yorkin and Lear did was that they brought in an active feminist from the National Organization for Women in Los Angeles to sort of deal with these interest groups and special interests and advocates uh, who wanted to make television matter. And, and in that way, they were able to have their ear really close to the ground because the people who were passionate about television actually were able to call into Tandem Productions or even get into the offices and, and talk with the people who were responsible for making these uh, sort of shows that really, really reflected what was going on at the moment. You draw in your essay a through line back to Rod Serling, who so many of us admire for the tremendous work that he did, not just with The Twilight Zone, which was a hit series on CBS and dealt with all kinds of, of supernatural um, settings, but social themes through many of those episodes. And um, and uh, Requiem for a, a Heavyweight, another uh, Rod Serling uh, pen story. Um, what do you see as the kind of similar Similarities between what Serling did in drama with what Lear did in comedy? Well, I think that they were both able to go up against the old standards of, of the industry, and, and in, especially in, in Norman Lear's case, because of where the industry was going in the 1970s, he was able to 
to make the previously taboo acceptable, whereas in, in Serling case, Serling's case, uh, the 60s was really uh, coming on as, as a more conservative period in terms of what kind of topics you were able to address. Um, but the fact that you know, on a show, and especially on a popular show, if you're able to take on a subject uh, as sensitive as uh, discrimination or uh, menopause or cancer or whatever, um, then you're really starting to, to break up those old rules and, and sort of destroy the taboos that existed. And that made other writers at other shows outside of Tandem Production really sort of listen up and, and, and realize that this medium actually offers us opportunities to yeah. talk about things that we care about. We'll continue remembering Norman Lear, who died last night at the age of 101, as we listen to the theme from Good Times, number of the hit comedies Norman Lear produced and the writing teams that he assembled uh, continue to hit on so many of the important themes that people were ready, willing, and uh, able to take in on television. We'll be back with more on Lear in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Such a great theme song and a very funny show with a gifted cast, The Jeffersons, one of the classic situation comedies created by Norman Lear and his tandem productions. We're remembering Lear, who died in his sleep last night at the age of 101. We're talking with Syracuse University, noted historian of television and popular culture, Robert Thompson, and with us from the Turku Institute for Advanced Studies in Finland, Oscar Winberg. He, too, is a historian of mass media and modern political history. 
history. Let me share some listener comments about Norman Lear creations. Uh, Akeen emailed, My parents loved Norman Lear, particularly the Jeffersons. I grew up on his shows and grew fond of many of the actors who appeared in his shows. Marla Gibbs, Sherman Hemsley, B. Arthur, and on and on. But uh, I'm wondering uh, whether you can address uh, the issue of the darker side. Uh, my NYU professor, Donald Bogle, said Norman Lear conducted a study into whether or not All in the Family helped ease social tensions in the U.S. and learned the show, in fact, deepened them. Bogle said uh, his response was to bury the results of the study. Do you know if that is true? Bob, do you know if that's true? Well, this is an interesting little rub on uh, the Norman Lear uh, universe. And I spoke to Norman Lear about this uh, when he did a thing for, uh, I brought him in to do a uh, thing here at the university uh, several years ago. Um, All in the Family comes out. And of course, Norman Lear is coming from this very, I think we could go so far as to say didactic, positively uh, uh, say it, but uh, a didactic kind of uh, agenda that he's got in his shows. But he introduces this character, uh, Archie Bunker, who we see week after week after week. And there was a sense that he was a lovable bigot, if those two things can go uh, together. Uh, Archie, uh, All the Family starts in January of 1971. And uh, the next year, when we're getting into a presidential election campaign, Archie Bunker for president buttons were appearing all over you could see them on bumper stickers on cars i remember this very well i in fact uh, encountered uh, many people who saw archie bunker not as the burlesque not as the buffoon that lear intended him to be but saw him as a spokesperson for something that they said we've been saying all along now finally someone on television is saying this uh, as well so there was a big population who watched that show and uh, took it in a very different way uh, than it was intended. Norman Lear didn't like to talk about that much. He, in fact, uh, kind of denied that that had happened. Uh, uh, but I think anybody who was around back then saw that Archie Bunker did become this by mere fact that he was being watched by tens of millions of people uh, every week. He oddly enough domesticated bigotry he normalized bigotry in some ways i think overall that show did wonderful things to raise the consciousnesses of many many americans and a lot of the other shows that he did uh did the same uh, did the same thing but there was that little collateral issue that we can't ignore Felix in Palmdale emailed us to say my favorite episode of All in the Family was when Edith demanded Archie take a vacation and then Archie in the hotel room, unlike how he was in uh, the bunker house, was very tender toward Edith. Felix says, I don't think their relationship was ever shown in such a light. That's Felix in Palmdale. Uh, Haim in West L.A. emailed when it was pointed out once to Carol O'Connor, who starred as Archie Bunker, that All in the Family had turned over new ground in TV. O'Connor responded, yeah, it's a shame not much has grown since then. Uh, Beth emailed us, these days, I, I think the people 
People for the American Way organization founded by Norman Lear uh, is, is uh, I so respect, their goal to speak out for the Bill of Rights and to monitor violations of constitutional freedoms. You can share your email comments about the impact of Norman Lear's programs at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and first name. Uh, Paulette in Santa Monica, good to have you with us. Your thoughts about the creations of Norman Lear. Hi, Larry. Um, I'm a psychotherapist in Santa Monica. When I get done with a day's work, I have been watching for the last several months, every night as I eat my dinner, all in the family. The humor is just as fabulous and relevant today. The acting is fabulous. The writing is so important. And I want to say that I watched this in the 70s with my family when my kids were little. I am so to speak up there in age. And Norman Lear is my role model for aging because he has been creative and active right to the end. Well, I can't think of a better role model for an aging American than Norman Lear, as you say. (laughs) It was extraordinary because it's not just that he lived to 101, which is an accomplishment, but we've never had more centenarians than we do now. More and more people do live to 100 and beyond. It's how he lived the 101 years that that's quite remarkable in, in the creativity, in the way that he was still someone who was commenting on what was going on in the world. He was he was still heavily involved. Paulette, thank you so much. Angie in Santa Monica, good to have you with us. Your thoughts about Norman Lear's contributions to American entertainment and culture. Good morning. Can you hear me? Sure can. Okay. I'm just calling as uh, the daughter of a West Texas rancher, uh, who was a, a, that a version, a Texas rancher version of Archie Bunker, and is to this very day. I love him. Um, however, growing up as a little kid, when he noticed that me and my siblings were watching Good Times or The Jeffersons in this white household, you know, he really was upset, and he really got triggered by that. And what I so appreciated about those shows was that not only was it bringing black, you know, struggle for sure into our living room, but I was getting to see black joy, black humor, black love in a small town where we really were not open to visiting our friends that we went to school with in their lives. So I'm so appreciative that Norman Lear brought that into our living room and started to shift my perspective on race that was very different from my father's. And I'm curious, too, if Norman Lear consulted black organizations, black writers, you know, as he created those shows, which I appreciated very much as a kid. Angie, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Oscar Winberg, uh, do you do you know to what extent um, Lear consulted with with African-American organizations as he crafted these shows? Sure. Uh, So. You know, back in the 1970s, the early 1970s, most of the writers on their shows and and all the other shows as well were white men, uh, often middle-aged men with with experience of of the television industry. But Lear did try to uh, institute 
sort of writing workshops for minorities and, and get more black writers into uh, his shows. And, and that's true on All in the Family, on The Jeffersons, on Good Times. Uh, now, it wasn't always a, a, an easy relationship between uh, the writers and, and various interest groups and, and organizations, uh, but he did have open communication between organizations. And in fact, there's a, a story that says that the sort of the birth of the Jeffersons was because the Black Panthers came to see him and wanted to have a show that was more of uh, an uplifting story about black people in America than perhaps what the good times uh, was showing at that time. Austin Cross, our host here at LAist, says, my favorite episode of the Jeffersons is Sorry, Wrong Meeting. George goes to a meeting that he thinks is about crime in the building where they live. It's actually a meeting to recruit members of the KKK. When the speaker suffers a heart attack, someone asks if anyone knows CPR. George is the only one. You can feel the tension in that moment as George Jefferson decides whether to help revive the man. He does, but feels conflicted about it. Austin, thank you so much for sharing that episode of The Jeffersons. If you have a favorite Jeffersons or All in the Family or One Day at a Time episode you'd like to share or Good Times, we're at 866-893-5722. Melissa in Mid-City, L.A. says, My mom and I watched One Day at a Time. She was divorced in a small town at a time when it was still unusual. She loved Bonnie Franklin and identified with her. I idolized the two daughters who were a bit older than me. They seemed so real, and I wanted to be friends with them. I especially loved the episodes about Julie's romance with the older man veterinarian. That was my fantasy. That's Melissa in Mid-City at L.A. Let's listen to a clip of Good Times. Uh, This goes back uh, to the series that was on CBS 1974 to 1979. Like all of these shows, tremendous cast. John Amos, Esther Roll starring, and here we hear them as James and Florida Evans, the stars of the series. Junior, thought I asked you to take the garbage out. Oh, uh, I will, Dad. That's what you said a half hour ago, Junior. Oh, don't worry, Dad. I got it covered. Now, Junior! <laughs> James, you don't have to yell at the boy. You know, in that child psychology course I'm taking, they say that most parents either reason with their children or yell at them. You are a yeller. Florida, I don't need none of them fancy school books to tell me how to raise these kids. We've been doing it this way for a long time now. Yeah, but if you reason with them, it makes them feel more responsible. All right, baby. All right. Junior. (laughs) Yes, Junior. Stop here a minute, please, sir. That's nice. (laughs) Junior. You know why old dad asked you to take the garbage out right now? Why, dad? Because if you didn't, I was going to yell my head off! (laughs) Good times from Norman Lear. Uh, Bob Thompson, I wanted to ask you about good times because um, John Amos, uh, the star from whom we just heard, was uh, somewhat critical of how the focus of that series shifted when uh, Jimmy Walker came uh, into... um, 
you know, got so much attention for the physical humor that that character did. And it went in more of a slapstick as opposed to social commentary direction. Um, did Lear say anything to you about that shift that Good Times undertook? Well, this was another delicate subject because John Amos's complaint wasn't just that it went to slapstick. It went to shuffling and very minstrel reminiscent kind of things, that whole dynamite uh, business that uh, uh, Jimmy Walker's character did. And of course, he became that that character became the the breakthrough. And John Amos also left that show, which means that whole idea of this nice, healthy, loving nuclear family. Uh, the father was ripped from that before the show uh, was over. And that was always an era of, of all of of all of Lear's shows. Good Times was the most contested. And it was because of that departure of the father uh, and the uh, uh, raising to the superstar status of this very, uh, again, what many perceived as the shuffling uh, character uh, uh, with with Jimmy Walker. However, that shouldn't make people uh, forget some of the really, really wonderful episodes that uh, uh, Good Times uh, did, including those featuring uh, uh, the Jimmy Walker character. There's one when he enters a painting contest. Uh, I think it was for Black History Week before uh, uh, the month had been uh, established. So that show did a lot of really interesting things. But like all of Lear's stuff, it was in this transitional uh, period and uh, various people who both watched it and were involved with it uh, had a lot to say about some of those transitions. Adam in Victorville says, I loved All in the Family and the Jeffersons. Lear made me think about the way we treat people of different races. I love the fact that the shows were about common people. Uh, Jeffrey in Beverly Hills, Norman Lear managed to create well-rounded characters who had human sympathies. There's an episode devoted to the death of the character Edith Bunker. The way it was handled was beautiful. And Fred in Pasadena says, Norman Lear gave voice to those who didn't have a voice. I want to thank all our listeners for weighing in and sharing their memories of Norman Lear, who passed last night in his sleep at the age of 101. My thanks to Robert Thompson, director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at Syracuse University, and Oscar Winberg, a postdoctoral fellow with the Turku Institute for Advanced Studies, who wrote an outstanding essay about Lear earlier this year in the Washington Post. I should say last year he wrote that piece. We leave you with the theme song from One Day at a Time. It's Air Talk. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. 
Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's TV Day today on Air Talk. I know typically it's Thursday we do our TV reviews, but it just sort of happened this way in putting the program together. Next hour, Sir Patrick Stewart is with us for an extended conversation. He's been a longtime LAist listener and um, always been uh, someone who uh, gave me tremendous support and encouragement over the years, which we appreciate. And uh, so we have an extended conversation with him coming up next hour here on Air Talk. But we continue in the theme of television after discussing the great Norman Lear, who did so much for the half-hour situation comedy. But joining us now, a man who's been showrunner, involved with some of the top hour-long television dramas over the years, Jeff Melvoin is author of Running the Show, Television from the Inside, and his shows have included Remington Steel, Hill Street Blues, Picket Fences, uh, Going to California, a one-season series on Showtime, Line of Fire, Alias, Army Wives, Early Edition, Designated Survivor, Killing Eve, uh, very extensive credits and uh, career in Hollywood. Jeff, thank you so much. Good to have you with us. It's, we appreciate it. It's great to be here. Thanks. So share with us um, your feelings about the industry now, having spent so many years uh, not only seeing how the sausage is made, but being involved you know, in the packing house, so to speak. Uh, I know for a lot of people, there's strongly mixed feelings about how television does can grind people down. What, you know, what's your sense of the industry and, and what it's like for people to work in it? Well, the, the business is definitely going through a tumultuous period right now. It's, it's, it's fascinating. It's bewildering. It's frightening. Um, and coming out of the strike, which was very successful, uh, we're, we're entering a period of contraction now. So it's, it's, it's particularly uh, going to be tough on people. But it's funny. When I grew up in broadcast, because uh, that's where I spent, and I have to mention Northern Exposure. That was the one oh, show yes, you didn't Oh, yes, of course. Northern that, Exposure. That, that's what yeah. I probably get talked about, too, <laughs> about more than anything else. But I grew up in a very lockstep industry. It was changing, and one of the reasons it was changing was because of Norman Lear. I mean, he broke the ground that a lot of us occupied then afterwards, because I think when you try to tell the truth, if you can make people laugh at the same time, uh, you can get by with a lot, many a truth told in jest. And he broke that ground and in a way was responsible for the type of things that Hill Street and other shows could, could then proceed to do. But it was a very, you know, it was mass Mass media in the fullest sense, that was one of the beauties of what Norman Lear was able to do, is he's able to get the entire country uh, to look at that show. And whether you identified with Archie Bunker or not, the family was watching and the family could discuss. As one of your listeners even said, you know, her father was that guy, but at least the family was watching it. Well, and the challenge uh, seems to be, I mean, you can have a critical darling or you can have a, a show that the masses watch that critics are, eh, it's to get both at the same. 
same time. That's and that was that was the challenge when I was coming up in the business. But the beauty of the twenty-two episode season was that there were a lot of what I consider teaching hospitals. You could get on a show that you knew was going to run for the entire season and probably have a healthy run. And a good show owner was like the chief resident who would take you on the rounds and let you look at the patients and treat some, treat some, but wouldn't let you kill anybody. They'd intervene before you did that. And um, some of the greatest creators of the shows that we now know today that led the revolution in subscription and streaming, David Chase, Vince Gilligan, Matt Weiner, they all came through that system of, of learning. And uh, so I think the biggest change that's happened over the last 10 to 15 years is the shortening of seasons and the lack of apprenticeship opportunities. And that lack of apprenticeship was clear even going back 20 years because I created something called the Showrunner Training Program for the Writers Guild. And the impulse was because even then, and this was before, uh, it was after The Sopranos, but before uh, Game of Cards, had, uh, House of Cards had dropped, that uh, that we noticed that that finally networkers were giving, were giving younger writers and original voices the opportunity to put on shows. But the problem is they didn't have the experience to run them. And running a show is a very difficult proposition. So a lot of shows were failing not for lack of talent, but for lack of experience and expertise. And so the ethos of the Writers Guild Showrunner Training Program is, at least the way I've always looked at it, is there are a lot of reasons that shows fail, but ignorance shouldn't be one of them. And we've tried to fill that gap and tried to give people um, the tools that they need to, to succeed. But since we started, uh, you know, 19 years ago, this is our 19th year of the program. Uh, the, the business just exploded, and and there's there's no center anymore. And uh, back in 2009, the majority of people, it's by application only. You have to be recommended, and we go through an interview process. But the great majority of participants in the program were white guys, mm-hmm. and uh, and and the great majority of shows they worked on were broadcast shows. Over the last four years, the majority of participants have been women, and there hasn't been one dominant platform. And so there are a lot of great changes reflected in that. The opportunities yeah, are yeah. tremendous, but but it it. As one of the, it, this strike really was an existential moment for us because the business was really becoming a gig economy uh, without any job security or stability or ability to become a showrunner. And so we made a lot of gains that I think are going to be very important. But it is, it is a bewildering time uh, because it's the way I looked at it is is the broadcast universe was very easy to understand. It was a solar system in which the three big networks and then Fox were the sun and everything else that was out there was like a satellite orbiting around the sun. And then somewhere around the year 1999, I mean, 2000, no, it was 1999 when, when the Sopranos came out, the sun exploded. And since then, <laughs> everything has been flying to the edges of the universe. There's pre-Sopranos and post-Sopranos. Right. And, 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 and so trying to say, well, where is the center of the universe? Uh, it's difficult. I, I'm still I'm an optimist by nature. I still think talent will find its way. But the uh, adding to the normal skills and the the multitasking responsibilities of being a showrunner for any writer and a writer producer in particular for showrunners resilience, resourcefulness, flexibility um, those are more important than they've ever been. I got a lot of discouragement when I was a young person looking at going into radio because this you know it's it, it the odds you're going to be able to make a living at it are very slim. Right. You're going to move all over. They gave all the downsides, all the scars they had experienced talking with people in the business. And I know that uh, a lot of times the advice to people who want to get into writing for television is don't do it because <laughs> it's it's so hard. But what do you say? You're someone who teaches young people. Yeah, I, I never would take that attitude. But what I tell people is if you can be discouraged, then somebody's done you a favor because it is so difficult. Um, it was funny. I just was uh, over in England uh, participating in a conference in London and I did some 
guest teaching at Oxford Brooks University. And the students were asking me, is this a good time to come into the business? And I said, okay, that's the wrong question. <laughs> that is always the wrong question because you have to go into this business or you shouldn't be doing it. And so if, if you want me to answer honestly, is this a good time to go into the business? No, it's a terrible time. We're going through a period of contraction. Nobody knows what's going on. Fear and loathing, which is always at a great premium in our business, is higher than ever. Um, but that shouldn't matter to you if you want to enter the business, you know, if you really want to enter the business. And so um, I think you owe it to yourself to go in with your eyes open and make an informed decision. But if you make that decision to do it, um, you know, I'm all in favor of it. It's, it's, if you talk to people who've made their way, nobody ever had it easy. And uh, uh, it's always been tough. But um, and, and <laughs> like you going into radio, you'd have to be crazy to say you're choosing this business for yeah. stability or no, any kind of guarantee. No, no. You know, I, it, I, I did it because I felt I had to do it. We'll continue our conversation with Jeff Melvoin, author of Running the Show, Television from the Inside. One of the things uh, that uh, he experienced multiple times in his career was coming into series after the creator had departed. And, and so how do you keep the elements of the show that have brought people to the series? there, but at the same time, keep it fresh enough people don't lose interest, don't feel like it's repeating itself. We'll find out how you do that when we come back in just one minute. It's Air Talk on LA at 89.3. Sir Patrick Stewart joins me next hour on Air Talk, making it so his new memoir. We'll be talking with him about that. Also, next hour, the president of the LA County Board of Supervisors, Lindsay Horvath, with us to talk about uh, her and her colleagues' priorities for 2024. Uh, running LA County government. But right now we're talking with the showrunner. So many uh, successful series uh, that he's helmed. Jeff Melvoin, author of Running the Show, TV from the Inside. So Jeff, you you came in to Hill Street Blues after Stephen Bochco was gone. David Milch is uh, essentially an erratic David Milch is sort of running the show. Um you you had similar experiences with other series that that um, you took over lead uh, roles on. So how how do you walk that line to keep a series fresh? Because so many series falter even in their second season. Yeah, it's a good question, and e- each show has its own unique brand of catastrophe. I think, and uh, you you know you you uh, they they all have their ins and outs. My first opportunity was when David E. Kelly asked me to take the fourth season of uh, Picket Fences, and uh, as 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 I said to a lot of people, that chapter of my biography should be known as uh, "Fools Rush In" because David <laughs> yeah. David David was he's a unique talent, and that show had a unique following. But when I spoke with him, I said, "Look, I can't imitate what you're doing uh, because you're a lawyer by training, and you have this way of picking uh, headline issues. That's never been my uh, style of writing." I've, I I said, "But you created these great characters, and um, I don't think they've been as explored as fully as they could. So I would like to be able to take the baton and and do that." And he gave me his complete blessing, and he was a terrific support during that year. But um, there was no question that that uh, what we tried to do that year was was different. 
different. It, it, to me, I said it's like a new musical director taking over the orchestra. Same players, but I'm picking slightly different music and I'm conducting to my style. And uh, it and it, it, it was tough. It was kind of criminally naive of me to believe that I think the audience would come with us. Um, and I tell the story in my, in, in my book that there was an episode that I was particularly proud of that Ellie Herman wrote and Jeremy Kagan directed that was just, it was called The Heart of Saturday Night. It was inspired by the Tom Waits song of the same name. And it just followed like 12 hours. Slice of life. Yeah, slice of life. And I loved it. I It was everything I could have hoped for. <laughs> and TV Guide came out. Uh, Jeff Jarvis was the couch critic back then. And and his lead was, they've ruined my favorite show. And, uh, and he went on to just t- talk about how I just desecrated the church of David E. Kelly. And this is TV Guide, which everyone reads at the time. Right. I, in fact, in the book, I have to explain, there was this thing called TV Guide, which was a paperback size weekly uh, publication that literally tell you everything that was going to be on the air that week. Largest circulation, along with Reader's Digest, largest circulation magazine in the country. And, and what surprised me at the time was when that came out, how unfazed I was by it, which wasn't because I had such thick skin, but I had a job to do. I had to finish the season. And as I say in the book, a year later, TV Guide did the 100 best episodes of television, and they picked one Picket Fences. It was that show. And, and it said <laughs> everything critic. I could. So, so, I mean, I learned a lot about the business that way. I mean, you've got to do what you believe in and, you, and you've got to move forward. But, but each show that I took over um, had different, different things going on. on. On early edition, I was brought in. Uh, that was Kyle Chandler's first show. And uh, uh, they were, it was rather chaotic behind the scenes. And when it came back for a second season, they asked me to take over. And that was really where I was able to, we kept that show on the air for three years more. And, and uh, that was a great learning experience. Um, working on going to California, which you mentioned, which, as I say, was Showtime a, 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 series. Yeah, Showtime series that should have should have done better for them, but was enjoyed by dozens of people before <laughs> it drove Those off. Those who saw it liked it. <laughs> right. right. But, uh, um, you know, probably the, the longest show that I, the show I worked on for the longest period of time was Army Wives, which is a show that I never would have thought that I would have been attracted to. And uh, when I looked at the pilot, they had made the pilot and wanted to get rid of the showrunner after the pilot. So they were shut down. They had uh, two episodes done, the pilot and one other one, and they wanted to be back up and running in 10 days. But I looked at the pilot, and I thought, this is terrific. And I really just understood, I think, what it was about. I had a great feeling for it. It was based on a nonfiction book about Army life. And uh, I said, what the heck? It's going to be three months of intense uh, work, and what's the worst that can happen? And and I felt at that time, I'd had enough experience, I felt like a doctor walking onto an accident scene on a highway. I mean, you, you have to keep your head. It's triage. You say, can this patient be saved? What's wrong with this patient? You have to prioritize, prioritize and you move, and you can't be bothered by... Uh, not being able to do everything that you that you could hope for in a perfect situation, and that show went on to become the number one drama in Lifetime's history. And uh, great cast, um, great creative people, great line producer, uh, and so that was a joy. And and I felt by the time I've been able to fill the slots with my folks, that the folks that I was able to hire, and the, that. Um, it was a joy. It showed what what television can be at its best from a creative point of view. Well, and you you, you came in with so many uh, top creators. I mean, alias J.J. Abrams, and you know so so many people that are highly influential, uh, uh, tremendously creative people. And you come in after that. You you have to have 
great confidence in yourself, but also have to be aware of what you don't know coming into that circumstance. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, you have to rep- you have to approach it respectfully, and I believe you also have to care about the material. Um, I've of- often said there's two things that matter to me, the quality of the people I'm working with and the quality of the material. And to the degree that one's deficient, the other one better be better damn good. And uh, for the most part, I've, I've had... I've worked on 14 shows, and there have only been one or two that in any way I would regret, but I, I don't regret because I always think it's important to be working, mm-hmm. and, I, and, and you try to learn everything you can from it. One thing about, um, uh, about television, it reminds me of a, an expression that's used for the House of Representatives, and uh, I should throw in that my son is running for the House, by the way, he's running oh, okay. for Adam, Adam Schiff's seat, but uh, um, is that uh, before you save the world, you have to save your seat. And so you know you have to constantly be making sure that you're maintaining a position where you can be hired and so um uh but but it it i do think you you have to at least be able to to devote yourself to whatever it is you're working on and if you can't it's not going to end up being it's it's going to be short-term money and a long-term problem because you're not going to do your best work jeff uh, just quickly we have about 45 seconds minute left you've you've led so many of these productions what's the most important thing that you've learned about leadership particularly among this peculiar subculture of television production that is a great question i i, I wish i had a, a a steady answer but um i think being open to learning always is important recognizing that people look to you uh, to make decisions, but that you need to be as open to suggestions as possible. You need to delegate. Um, I, I, I just think, um, and maybe Norman Lear is a good way to finish it off, you just have to be a human being and uh, uh, and do what you believe in, and, and then I think good things result. Jeff Melvoin with us. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeff. His book, Running the Show, Television from the Inside, the first half of the book really details his career, all these shows, all the things we've been talking about. The second half is a true primer for those getting into the business or even early in their careers, laying out what he learned about different aspects of television production and advice on how to make the most of your career in it. Highly recommended for those who are are working in or going into uh, production of television. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. Much more to come in hour two. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Sir Patrick Stewart joins us a little bit later in this hour for an extended interview about his new memoir, Making It So. 
But we begin the hour with the just appointed chair of the L.A. County Board of Supervisors. Her tenure in the top position started yesterday for Lindsay Horvath, whose district stretches from the Ventura County line along the coast through West Hollywood and portions of the San Fernando Valley. Supervisor Horvath, thank you very much for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, how does it feel so early in your tenure as a supervisor to be in this top position? You know, I'm incredibly honored. I am uh, very aware that this is an awesome responsibility, and I know that we will be up to the challenge uh, because we have the partnership of Los Angeles County residents who are interested in seeing work get done. And so their sense of urgency is really informing how we will be leading the board over this next year. And and let's talk about how the board is structured. Just for those who aren't as familiar, five supervisors, each with an enormous district, not just geographically, but in the number of residents who are served. There is no county mayor. There's a chief administrative officer who reports to the board. But what is the role of the chief? chair of the board? So the chair uh, helps to direct our meetings. Um, As we saw during the COVID emergency, the chair is the lead voice for the county on how we direct our services and supports in a time of crisis. And because we are in a declared state of emergency on homelessness, uh, my leadership will continue uh, on that uh, in partnership with all of my colleagues. We will um, also be prioritizing how, uh, how what we discuss in our agendas and also how we use our meeting time to focus on the most pressing issues. And we will be incorporating an additional meeting in to our uh, work program that allows for more substantive conversation to bring department heads together and to get updates on some of the most pressing challenges in our county. Let's talk about homelessness because the county is responsible for the supportive services going to those living on the streets. And I want to talk about the shortage of personnel. As you know, County Department of, of Mental Health is dealing with a significant shortage of clinicians and people to do the work necessary to provide services to people in need. What is the county looking at doing to try and and recruit more people, create a better working environment, raise pay if necessary? What are you doing to make sure that there are enough people to do this work? Well, the very first thing that we did last year was declare the state of emergency, which allowed us to go outside our typical bureaucracy, cut through the red tape and accelerate, uh, among other things, hiring practices. And actually, the Department of Mental Health has been leading the way in that regard, using the declaration of emergency to hire more staff into their ranks, uh, to promote more people into the leadership roles that are necessary. Um, But all departments have been directed to use the declaration of emergency to increase hiring. Um, We have, in some cases, offered same-day offers to students who are coming out of school. Uh, We have made sure that we are um, using more community partners to bring folks into the work pipeline, um, and we'll continue to accelerate those efforts. I just met with Dr. Wong last week to talk about even more incentives that she has in mind uh, for the department, and we're working very closely with the CEO uh, to ensure that um, we are using the full authority of the declaration of emergency to hire more people. But it's also about accelerating contracting, making sure our community partners who do this work with us are 
are also uh, not only um, getting paid for the services, but getting paid quickly, that we're not allowing long lag times to be um, costly and uh, unnecessarily spend uh, those very precious funds that we have to fund services and supports for people who need our help, We're which is also why I appointed myself as, uh, to the LASA Commission. Since that time, I've been elected chair, and now the mayor has joined me, as well as my colleague, Supervisor Barger, on the LASA Commission. And so we have a lot more focused attention there as well to increase accountability. We're talking with Los Angeles County Supervisor Lindsay Horvath. She is uh, the new chair of the Board of Supervisors, talking with us about the priorities uh, of uh, that she has, as well as her colleagues on the board. also wanted to ask you uh, about um, stormwater runoff because I know there's a very ambitious plan to capture much more of stormwater. This is a, a county responsibility. How is the county going to, uh, going to capture a significant percentage of, of the rain that falls? Well, just yesterday, we introduced the county's first ever water plan uh, to to comprehensively look at not just stormwater, but um, how we work with all of the 200 plus agencies that exist throughout the county and throughout the region uh, to provide water. We know that the increased uh, cost of importing our water um, is just not something that we can afford uh, financially, let alone in terms of having a sustainable future. So we have not only a roadmap in terms of the water plan, but I also introduced a motion which was unanimously approved to put that plan into action and make sure that it's fully funded, that we are actively engaging our partners to uh, adopt these best practices that are set out by the county. And I know our Department of Public Works has already done some of the early legwork to communicate what our priorities are, what the action items are, and to get that buy-in from our local partners. So we've uh, already got a plan ready to go, and now it's about putting it into action in 2024. What, what can you do to help coordinate between all the many water agencies in L.A. County because each has such different needs. Some are able to tap more well water. Others have to import from a variety of different sources. So how can the county play a role in better coordination between agencies? Well, one of the things that my motion called for was to um, have a convening of these agencies to discuss best practices and make sure that we are adopting them across the board. We know that when these water agencies are only focused on narrowly the areas that they serve, we're missing opportunities for conservation, for best practice adoption, and um, sharing them across excuse me, across jurisdictions. Um, for example, I know several years ago, uh, the Beverly Hills um, Water Authority uh, met with leaders in the state of Israel to adopt best practices and um, and learn some of what's been uh, happening there to bring it into um, their practices in the city of Beverly Hills. Any of those lessons learned should be shared regionally. We should have open lines of communication, the ability for everybody to work together. Um, and so uh, our convening power will bring people together to uh, explore how we make sure that those lessons learned are shared regionally and put into place um, quickly. Share with us, if you will, what the county's new plan is for protecting beaches with a combination of sea level rise and more intense weather, which causes erosion and loss of sand. Uh, what role is the county board playing in, in trying to protect beaches? 
We uh, recently brought forward a motion in partnership with the Department of Public Works and Department of Beaches and Harbors to take a look at coastal erosion and um, and learn from our local community partners who have been focusing on this issue for many years. Their expertise is helping to inform the plan that we're adopting in the county. We will be working with those partners to uh, not only find funding sources, but also uh, find areas to pilot um, interventions that um, are natural, that work with the environment, and that will um, provide long-term outcomes. We are um, also working, for example, with the Department of Public Works, they have been hauling sediment from uh, some of our stormwater capture and uh, throughout the region. Um, this sediment would typically just be placed uh, in a pile somewhere. Um, we're now going to be using that material to help uh, recreate um, the, the interventions that help prevent coastal erosion and um, use the resources that we already have. So we're very excited about um, how we can use the resources that the county already has within its authority to uh, to make those uh, solutions possible. We're talking with Los Angeles County Supervisor Lindsay Horvath, who is now the chair of the County Board of Supervisors, five supervisors who split up uh, Los Angeles County. Uh, thank you so much, Supervisor Horvath, for joining us. We appreciate it very much. Look forward to checking in with you again soon. Thank you for having me. Lindsay Horvath, L.A. County Board of Supervisors, joining us on Air Talk. Coming up, we'll be talking with Sir Patrick Stewart about his new memoir, uh, which uh, details the Star Trek Next Generation and other years in his extensive career. Just a reminder for lovers of TV, because we've certainly had a lot of TV talk today with the death of Norman Lear and remembering his great series. Tomorrow, it's our TV critics joining us in the second hour of Air Talk. I'll talk about what the, the best new programs are as well as a series returning with new seasons. That's coming up tomorrow. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with Sir Patrick Stewart, Making It So, the title of his new memoir. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Captain's Log, Stardate 41636.9. As feared, our examination of the seven-year-overdue Federation freighter Odin, disabled by an asteroid collision, revealed no life signs. However, three escape pods were missing, suggesting the possibility of survivors. Ready to begin orbit of Angel One, Captain. Make it so, Mr. LaForge. Uh, Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard from the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, and so pleased to have with us Patrick Stewart himself. His recently published memoir, Making It So, details his childhood in Yorkshire, England, coming to the United States to make the next generation what uh, he learned about the course of the many seasons playing that character and of course all the other roles that he's had on film and of course renowned stage roles from the UK to the United States and worldwide. Sir Patrick Stewart, so good to have you back with us today on Air Talk. Oh, thank you very much. And um, may I use your name? Of course. Your first name? Yes, Larry, of course. Thank you, Larry. This is a great pleasure. 
I appreciate it. When when uh, you were approached about the role of Jean-Luc Picard by the team collaborating with Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, uh, you were unimpressed. You weren't familiar with the original series. You even got advice against getting involved with it, yet little did you know what was coming. And I'm wondering, what what did uh, Sir Ian McKellen and others say to you about taking this role? Well, Ian was the only person that said, no, I should not accept it. Uh, others were mostly saying, look, you don't have to worry about the length of this commitment, six years, because you're not going to make it. You'll be lucky to get to the end of the first season because you cannot revive an iconic series like Next Generation. Ian said, no, 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 you've got too much important theater work coming up. You, you can't commit yourself to this. Well, he has since then admitted that he was mistaken in that comment. Ian is one of my dearest and closest friends. In fact, Ian was the man who married Sonny and I. He got himself uh, qualified uh, to be uh, to conduct a service, and that's how close we are. He has to be careful with that Universal Life Church thing. Once you get that designation, he'll be asked to do many weddings, as I have been. And that sort of goes along oh, with when you get it. Really? Yeah. Yes, I, I believe that that has already happened to Sir Ian. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Um, you were already a highly regarded stage performer, Royal Shakespeare Company. You'd been at the Old Vic Bristol for, for many years. You were in your early 40s, well-established for your acting skills. But how did things change when you became a global TV star? Well, they changed dramatically. Uh, have I ever said, I don't think I have to you or, or, or to the network, that um, when the Los Angeles Times first wrote about the new series, Next Generation, they said, and this is an exact quote, and the role of the captain will be played by unknown British Shakespearean actor, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> and <laughs> that, was, that felt a little offensive yes. to me. But um, the next morning when I came into work, which was, actually my first day of filming, um, I saw that there was a big piece of paper stuck on my trailer door. And it said in large letters, beware, unknown British Shakespearean actor, Patrick Stewart. <laughs> and of course, that was the work of Brent Spiner, who was to go on to so brilliantly play Data the Android in the series. Um, so that's that was my status to start with, but to my astonishment, it didn't last long. And we were all surprised and delighted when we began to have fed to us the the pleasure that, that the series was giving. What sorts of, of mixed emotions did you have? That, here you're having people telling you how much the series means to them, how much your character that you're developing over this long arc means to them as well. But at the same time, it makes it difficult for you to go back to the stage for longer runs because the hiatus of the series is is time limited yeah, and difficult yeah. to, to do other things you might want to do. So what was that trade-off like? It was tricky. I, I, I 
I was happy when we we found ourselves being successful once the first season was airing. But um, I was still uneasy about the fact that my commitment had to be six years or six seasons long. And uh, I, I decided that if I wanted to keep my connection with the theater alive, and I did, one of the ways to do that would not be to commit myself to stage productions because that would become very complicated, but rather I could, um, I, I, well, it was hard to know what, but I felt if I created a one-man show, for example, just me, I would be in control of it. I could determine when I performed, how long I performed for, um, and that's what I did. Although it was, it wasn't until the end of season two that I did my first attempt at a one-man show. And then I, cons that was my um, uh, A Christmas Carol uh, solo show. And then I also added to it several others so that I could, over a weekend, say, for example, in the same location, I could do two or three programs. And although it was um, tiring work, because we worked intensively Monday to Friday, and then I would do my one-man shows Saturday and Sunday afternoons, um, it was challenging, but I survived it, and it kept me fresh and alert. And I think a lot of what I was doing on stages at that time bled in a positive way into Next Generation. Patrick Stewart, of course, you recognize his voice, Sir Patrick, <clears throat> joining us on Air Talk. His new memoir, Making It So, and one of the things that's so great about the book is that amount of, of reflection that he provides, including what he shares about A Christmas Carol, taking that to London after the the show had already had tremendous notices in Pasadena at the Playhouse, in a number of other locations, but then he goes to take it to London and and um, there to take this this Dickens uh, product to a place where it's it's much more familiar to people. It sounded like that was very very challenging. How did you deal with that that anxiety and excitement about taking it to London? I, I I took a lot of advice on how to calm down. I was nervous. I, I'll assure you of this because here in California or in other parts, because I'd also done the show in New York, um, there was a, a, a generosity and curiosity about what I was doing by the audience, and they tuned into it. And I've always found playing for American audiences and English audiences can be very different. And sometimes the American audiences are much more responsive to what's going on on stage than an English audience might be. So I was only going to do one, well, uh, 10 days at the Old Vic Theatre, perhaps the most famous theatre in the United Kingdom, uh, where I had gone as a teenager to watch Shakespeare. And to find that I was doing my one-man show on that stage was in itself a little intimidating, although also tremendously exciting. And um, it, it, it all went well. 
and uh, the receptions that I received. And that was largely due because my audiences consisted of a large number of Star Trek fans who probably wouldn't have been there if I'd not done uh, Next Generation. So that there were positive aspects of this. And um, when I, I, I very, very soon after I got back to Los Angeles, because it was Christmas when I did it, so I didn't have any Christmas holidays or Christmas break, I flew back to Los Angeles to start the second half of the season of season two. And um, I, uh, I, I found that I had been given a, a nomination for an Olivier Award for my performance in Christmas Carol. In the uh, in the one man show category, and so um, very generously, um, Next Generation gave me a long weekend, and I was able to go back for the awards. And to my utter astonishment, I won the <laughs> the Olivier Award, and it was uh, so exciting and so deeply satisfying. And for the first time, I realized I can combine this work. It's neither, if anything, each, whatever work I'm doing will contribute to the other work that I also do. And I was, I, I, I felt very fortunate to be in that situation. We're talking with Sir Patrick Stewart, his new memoir, Making It So. He's joining us on Air Talk to discuss his life, which he, he lays out from his earliest years, his very difficult childhood experiences with, with verbal and, and physical violence against his mother by his father. Nevertheless, you write that the character of Jean-Luc Picard from The Next Generation is heavily influenced by your father and his demeanor. Uh, elaborate on that, please. My father was a, an extraordinary and, and yet very disappointed man. He had had a military career. Uh, he had been for eight years in India with the British Army in the 20s. And then he returned mid-30s and was just doing ordinary working day jobs. And then um, he, uh, the Second World War came along. He immediately joined up, even though he was technically a little too old to be a conscript for the Second World War. And by um, September of 1945, he uh, retired from the army. His work was over, the war had ended satisfactorily. Um, and he, his rank when he retired was the regimental sergeant major of the parachute regiment of the British army. Um, the most senior non-commissioned office that a, a, a soldier could have. And yet there was nothing waiting for him in England. And the work he was doing did not make use of his abilities, his talents, his intelligence, his, his uh, authority, his uh, happiness to take control of situations and so forth. Um, and it, it led to uh, weekend alcoholism and uh, uh, on those weekends, um, occasionally, if, rouse fights 
and uh, appallingly and sadly violence too. And I got used to our um, little home, one up, one down, one room downstairs, one room upstairs, no bathroom, no toilet, no kitchen. And it was, um, uh, it, it, it was difficult for him. Um, but in, in other respects, the glimmers of his commitment to authority and to responsibility was very, very strong. And when I began looking at Captain Picard and saw uh, how he behaved, what his um, responses to situations were, what his relationship with the crew was, my father came back into my head. And so I, I attempted to take elements of him and inject them into Captain Picard. Um, I actually think I overdid it because when <laughs> I came to write the memoir, I, um, I I was very nervous about writing about Star Trek because there are still millions of fans out there in the world who, who love the series. And if, if I go outside on the street daily, I am usually um, greeted by some comment about the next generation, which mostly is very, very satisfying. Mm -hmm. Yesterday, uh, a middle-aged man said to me that I had made his childhood possible because he felt security when I was there and I was around. And his difficult childhood, he lived through because he had Star Trek to influence him. Now, hearing comments like that, if you're an actor, is um, extraordinary. And, and it makes me very proud to have had be part of I say, that's important to me, not the one who was responsible, but part of a team of people who had that impact on others. It's, it's just, I can't imagine anything being more gratifying for an actor. And, and you write that your mother's empathy was something that you brought to the character as well. So, so she's part of the creation of Jean-Luc. Yes, she is. My mother was a lovely, charming, shy, um, humorous person who had made the first five years of my life um, perfect because uh, my father was aware of the war. It was just my mother, myself, and my older brother, Trevor, who, may he rest in peace, uh, died about 18 months ago, and I miss him very much. I also had an older brother, 17 years older than me, but that's <laughs> a complicated other story that I won't go into now. Um, yes, I, I I soaked up some of the elephants, elements of my mother. And whereas I'd always felt that to be an actor, certainly a classical actor, a Shakespearean actor, you had to be strong and firm and, and full of authority. Well, that wasn't my mother. So I introduced into the work that I did her gentleness her thoughtfulness, her respect for others, her kindness. And it it brought me great satisfaction, Simon. 
We're talking with Sir Patrick Stewart, his memoir, Making It So, talking about his experiences, of course, in creating the character Jean-Luc Picard in Star Trek The Next Generation, his notable stage work as well, and the ways in which his childhood experiences and even the traumas he experienced as a boy growing up in Yorkshire, England, come into play in his work. Sir Patrick, that's not unusual, of course, for actors to take difficulty from their childhoods and and to use that you've talked about how your parents were a part of that but other aspects of your childhood things that you weren't able to to resolve when you were a child uh, are there aspects of that you feel you bring to your work overall yes there are and one of the things is a, a certain amount of sadness that my parents are no longer in the world to understand what I've been doing. And I know both of them would have been thrilled and and proud if they had been around. Luckily, both my brothers were long enough and uh, and aunts and uncles and uh, uh, nephews and nieces. And I actually, I am now a great uncle and the oldest member of my family. Um, since my brother died. Uh, and, th- and this is something I've learned increasingly as the years and my work has gone by, that it is possible to access these experiences and bring them to the work that I do so that there is a sense of still living it, that it's alive. It's not the past interfering with the future. On the contrary, it is support. And um, I wish I could have made that discovery earlier in my work, because I think I would have benefited by it. Patrick Stewart with us on Air Talk. Sir Patrick, author of Making It So, his memoir, will continue on the program. And I learned from his memoir that his very close friendship with Sir Ian McKellen is actually of more recent vintage. I didn't realize that it was their co-starring roles in X-Men, which really brought them together. They'd known each other, but it's really the very close friendship that they have now that's just been since that first X-Men film. We'll, we'll ask Sir Patrick about that. Also talk with him about his powerful voice, which of course is recognized around the world, how he went from his Yorkshire accent to the voice that became the Patrick Stewart professional actor voice. And of course, as his voice has aged over time as well, he shares how that factors in to the series Picard, which just concluded its third season several months ago. You're listening to Air Talk on LAist 89.3. We'll be back in just a minute. Support for LAist comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. 
Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle, joined by Sir Patrick Stewart of Star Trek The Next Generation, A Christmas Carol on stage here in Southern California and elsewhere, uh, a man who made his mark in British theater as a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, one of the stars of X-Men and sequels as well. Patrick Stewart's new memoir is Making It So. As I said before the break, uh, Sir Patrick, I was so surprised. I had assumed you and Ian McKellen had been best buddies for, you know, 50 years or something. Uh, how how is it that that co-starring in X-Men brought you so close together? Well, if I could just talk about why it didn't happen sooner, it was because um, I, I knew Ian's work. I had watched it for years. And Ian it was so gifted that he came out of his education. And for his beginning work, he was already noted as an important actor. And we did actually both work with the Royal Shakespeare Company for the same season, but not in the same play. And I remember being, well, a nice thing to say would be shy of him, but actually I think I was really intimidated by him and by his confidence and, uh, and brilliance as an actor. Then we were thrown into X-Men together and as it happened, I mean, we I think we had 12 huge first-class trailers because there were so many leading actors in that first season. <clears throat> and uh, it just happened that Ian's trailer was next to mine. And we were the only two British actors in the show. And so we began socializing. And so it might be going into his trailer for a cup of tea or a cup of coffee in the morning and chatting because you know with shows like x-men you spend most of your life waiting <laughs> to work not actually working and then um i would invite him in if we worked a long day which was commonplace um come to my trailer and have a drink and we would have a glass of wine which was a little bit cheeky while we were still working but nevertheless it was lovely and that's how our friendship developed until it became um, a kind of wonderful love story. Um, I, I found I adored him, and, and so does my wife, Sunny, too. And was, it was her idea that we should invite Ian to marry us. And it was, um, it was a wonderful occasion. So it, it's, it's been one of the very best uh, impacts of my career, is, is having this close affinity with Ian. One of the things that struck me as well is your reluctance to do the work 
for which you've received your greatest acclaim and and your reluctance originally about signing on to the next generation, your reluctance to agree when Brian Singer and the team of X-Men approach you about that, and then even with Picard, the three-season series that has been your most recent television work, your reluctance to revive the character, and, and then you agreed to do so with, with very specific um, ideas about how a later in life Picard would be portrayed. Is there anything to be learned about that with the, the, the things that have been so successful that that uh, gave you pause, at least in the first presentation to you? Well, what I benefited from was listening very carefully to what um, the producers of Picard had to say about returning to it. Because my feeling was in the seven, eight years that, well, actually, what am I saying? No, it was more like 12 years that I was playing Jean-Luc Picard. Um, I thought I'd said everything about him. There was nothing more to say. And I I do remember, um, I think it was Akiva Goldsman saying to me, look, Patrick, in the last 20 years or, or more since you did uh, Star Trek, hasn't your life itself undergone some changes, some new experiences, different feelings about the world and so forth? And I had to acknowledge that, yes, it had. And they said, well, what we want to do is investigate what has happened to Jean-Luc Picard in those 20 years. So it wasn't a case of just picking up the threads that we'd left off. It was, in a way, taking a big breath and starting again. And that was what intrigued me. And that was why I signed on, although I did insist on no more than three years, three seasons of the show, which, of course, was massively intruded on and interrupted by COVID, um, and uh, which, which made things a little bit challenging. But I am now very, very glad I did it because particularly in the third season of Picard, the work that I was faced with felt so new and original. There was absolutely no sense of, I was just rolling out the familiar stuff from Next Generation. I wasn't. It was something that was new. Pat, the third season was terrific, and I know you were reluctant about bringing the gang back together, your castmates from the next generation, but the way in which it was done, bringing the characters in one by one in that third season, and the palpable camaraderie between you and your castmates on Next Generation and bringing all of you back later in your lives, that made for some very powerful television what did that feel like for you? Well, as uh, a person who loves all those other members of our next generation crew, my colleagues from that, um, and still have a very close and intimate, warm and enjoyable relationship with them. Um, we're meeting up again in a week or two's time, and it's it's always a delight. But everybody was changed. It wasn't just Picard. I mean, you know, the difference in Worf, the great, tough, strong, terrifying Worf, who had now become a kind of gentle pacifist and, and uh, um, 
a thoughtful and sensitive person rather than the man who was already always ready to jump up and punish somebody if if he was at risk from them. Um, and that was the same for Brent and Jonathan and Lavar and Michael and and and, uh, and Marina and Gates. We all and even Whoopi because Whoopi came back and did a couple of little contributions. I had just been nervous that it might be looked upon as a reunion show, but it wasn't because we weren't the same people. Oh yes, we had the same names, and and our histories were well known but they were now different. And that was what made it worthwhile and exciting. Sir Patrick Stewart, his new memoir, Making It So, that's what we're talking about, is his life and career on Air Talk. Sir Patrick, how has the character Jean-Luc affected you, the man, Patrick Stewart, if the character has? I think um, his generosity and kindness, but particularly his ability to listen to others um, has had an impact because it's something now that I work hard uh, on myself. And uh, he's, by the time we finish season seven of Next Generation, there was no separating Patrick Stewart and Jean-Luc Picard. We had merged. There's no question about that. And I was comfortable with that. And and so to merge with somebody who had whom I had to find out about, to rediscover, uh, to analyze, was an intriguing step. And um I'm so glad, I'm so glad that I was uh, that I listened to my producers and my directors. And, and heard that they were offering me something original and unique. And I'm hopeful, actually, that we might still, I've been campaigning uh, quietly, gently, that we might make one more uh, movie, one more feature film, out of a, a development of the three seasons of Picard. That would be that would be terrific. The fans would love that. I did want to ask about your voice because it's it's such a significant tool and part of your acting gift. You were not born with the voice that you use. You had a Yorkshire accent. You worked hard to create, I think what you describe I can't remember the term in, in your book, but essentially it's the BBC voice. And and then you mention about how with with Picard the series, how your older voice, which has changed as all of our voices do with age, that that brought something new to your portrayal of the character. And just speak briefly, if you will, about the evolution of your voice from the child yeah. Patrick Stewart to, to today's voice? Well, today, um, my voice is a little bit grisly, and I had to do a little warm-up before I, I came on the, to talk to you, um, because it's, it's, it's an older voice now. I, I don't have to act an older man's voice, it's there. But um, when I was a child um, in the West Riding of Yorkshire, where I was brought up in, in a blue-collar, working-class environment, um, I spoke with a strong North Country, West Yorkshire accent, but not just an accent. It was also dialect. So we use words that were not common 
in the English language. Um, by the way, what you were talking about earlier was RP, received pronunciation. Received pronunciation, they, that, yeah. Yeah, that's what they called it on the BBC. And that's why so many BBC voices sounded the same, because they, the BBC wanted them to be accessible. It's interesting now that that philosophy has changed entirely. And you hear all kinds of accents and even occasionally dialect when when you're listening to um, BBC radio, because I'm a, I'm a great fan of radio. Uh, we had no television set when I was a child. I don't think we got one until I was 15. Um, and all we had was a radio. So the radio and the voices on the radio and how they could become intimate and close to you so that sitting in, in our one living room downstairs and listening to the BBC, I, I felt connected to them, which given that these were mostly all highly educated uh, people, and I was not because I left school at 15 and my education was over. It isn't that I dropped out. It was over. I, you know, in those days, if you were 15 in a secondary modern school, you it came to an end. And um, and I went to work, uh, not as an actor. That took a couple of years before I found I could do that. But I, I have been proud of my Yorkshire background ever since. Um, I mean, my soccer team, which I was watching yesterday, are called Huddersfield Town. You may not have heard of Huddersfield, no. but it was um, about... The ground was about four miles away from where I was brought up. And I was taken by my uncle when I was, I think, six or seven to see my first game there. And he sat me on his shoulders for the entire game. And um, I fell in love with the experience. And I still am. And I see every game they play because thanks to uh, technology, I can do that. I can watch each game live if I need to, or I can watch it 25 hours later in recordings. And even, I mean, they've been struggling, my club, for the past couple of years. And uh, it makes no difference to me. Even if I know that they've lost the game, I will still watch it all the way through because I, I identify with them so closely. But I spoke with the dialect. I'll, I'll give you a quick example yes. of that. If I would go to my friend's house when I was a child and knock on the door, uh, when he came to answer the door, <clears throat> or when I got to speak with him, I would say, at a lake in art. What? <laughs> at a lake in art. At a, art thou. Because in my family, we, we use thee and thou, although they had to be used very sensitively. Because if I ever called my father thee, I would get belted. I would get clipped around the ear. So atta, art thou, lakin, lakin is at least a 14th century word, meaning playing. Actors in Shakespeare's day were called lakers. Now, lakers here in the United States are known as something else. Different meaning. <laughs> yes, a different meaning. Atta lakin, art. Are you coming out to play? Is the translation of that. Wow. And I had to relearn that kind of thing. 
and a wonderful teacher, acting teacher, I acquired at the age of 13, said to me, Patrick, you know, if, 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 if you really want to be a good actor, you've got to lose that accent. Even if you don't lose it all the time, you've got to temporarily be able to lose it because not everybody in England talks like you. So that's what I had to do. And, um, uh, and that's when I learned about RP, received pronunciation. It's and um, occasionally my, my wife will tell me um, when I get off the phone after a conversation, she will say, you, you've been talking to your brother, haven't you? <laughs> or you've been talking to one of your nephews. You know, it always made me kind of proud because my family had said to me, because I've used the accent in the past on both on television and on stage. And my family always said, e, Patrick, lad, that's not a Yorkshireman anymore. <laughs> and and I, uh, I, I, I've always felt irritated about that. I felt I could still do the accent authentically, but they never quite felt that, I suppose. And I, so now I'm, I'm a mixture of both. Sir Patrick, this another example of, of the kind of talent and yet the tenacity that you showed throughout your career. I love in making it so, your memoir, you describe all these times when you so deeply committed yourself to what you were working on to the point sometimes where it, it, it led to an unintended consequence. Uh, the, uh, the incident of season one when you dressed down your castmates on The Next Generation about not being serious enough, you detail that and how that was not so well received and you still get, get teased a bit by that. But I want to thank you for being with us to talk about your, your life and your memoir. And I want to add a person note at the end here because you write about the experience of performing A Christmas Carol at the Pasadena Playhouse and Kirk Douglas coming backstage, this actor who you so admired, to tell you how much the work you did was life-changing for him and so meaningful. And you've always been so kind to tell me about what my work has meant to you and the sense of place you've said it's helped give you of of Los Angeles. And I want to let you know how much that means to me. I'm such a fan of your work. I so value the craft that you bring to whatever role on stage or film or TV that you do. And thank you for being so supportive. It, It means a great deal to me. You're very welcome, uh, and I'm, I'm proud of what you just said. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sir Patrick Stewart, Making It So, a memoir, joining us on Air Talk. Coming up tomorrow on Air Talk, it's TV Talk. Yes, there's more of television on Air Talk. Our critics with the best of TV will hear about new and returning series. That's all coming up tomorrow on the program. And, uh, of course, we're going to be talking about other important topics. A new Stanford study looking at phonics and its continuing success in the reading wars. And I want to hear from listeners who celebrate Hanukkah, some of their favorite memories of the holiday, things that uh, they fondly remember, as well as traditions they've kept alive in their families. That's all coming up tomorrow, 9 o'clock on Air Talk. Have a great rest of your day.
The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.